You are now listening to the March 18th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Psalms, This Is My Song, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Psalms, This Is My Song. Hello, this is Terry with Psalms, This Is My Song. I pray we spend this time together to lift our hearts to the Lord. If someone knows everything about you, would you feel comfortable being around that person? Would you feel close to that person? Perhaps most of us would not enjoy that relationship. We would feel uncomfortable with the sense of vulnerability. Someone knowing everything about me means that person knows all the shameful things, unfair things, and downright evil things that I have done, and that would clearly make me feel self-conscious when I am around that person. But how about if that person is not human but God? Does that still make you feel uncomfortable? Or would that actually make you feel closer to Him? Of course, it is a fact that God knows everything about us. God knows all the moments in our lives. He was there when we were born. He watched us as we grew up and ran into difficulties. He was there when we were very tired, when we were very sad, when we were falsely accused, and when we were sick. Did you ever feel all alone? Just when we thought we were all alone against the ups and downs of our lives, how comforting would it have been if God said, It's okay, I know everything. At the same time, when we face the fact that God knows all our shameful acts, unfair deeds, and dark intents of our hearts, some of us could feel uncomfortable and anxious. Would you agree? Does the fact that God knows everything about you come as something that makes you uncomfortable or something that strengthens and comforts you? I sincerely hope the fact that God knowing everything about you comes to you as something that causes you to give thanks and something that comforts you and strengthens you. In order for that to happen, there should not be anything that stands between you and God and blocks the relationship with God. We need God's words and our thoughts be focused on the same thing. The psalm we are going to share today is Psalm 139. This is a psalm known to be written by David. In this psalm, he continually confesses how God knows everything about him. He articulates how God knows everything about him since it is God that has been watching over him. He admits that God knows when he sits down and when he rises up and how God discerns his thoughts from afar. He confesses that God searches out his path and knows his lying down and getting up. God is well acquainted with all his ways. He also confesses that God sees and knows these things even before he was born, and everything is already written in God's book even before the day of his birth, knowing everything about him. But David does not say he feels uncomfortable about God knowing everything about him. On the contrary, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! And he thanks God and is joyful and awestrucken. Of course, the reason David felt this way was not because he was sinless or did not do anything shameful. As we know, David committed great sins several times. But because he knew God who would forgive sinners who confess and repent of their sins and embrace them, knowing there would be redemption, he was not uncomfortable going to God and asking God to watch his actions and change his ways. He finishes Psalm 139 by saying, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David knew that he could walk on the path everlasting, only when God sees his evil acts 
and then leads them to repentance. What do you think? I pray that the words of David in this psalm would resonate within all of us. We will feel comfortable about going to God who knows everything, causing us to give thanks and find joy just as David did. We'll conclude today's psalm, This Is My Song, by reading Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem in me, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inner parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I will count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Milter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Reverend Courage. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Today we continue in a series that we have entitled Reverence, Walking Humbly Before Your God. Now in way of review, if you are new with us, this will catch you up real quick. Week number one, we talked about fearing the Lord, the importance of fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we said, start here, stay here, and be crystal clear on this point, not only in your own life, but in the lives of those that you are able to influence. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Week number two, we talked about reverent worship. What does reverent worship look like? Well, it's repentant worship. Reverent worship is repentant worship. Uh, Psalm 51 says, the sacrifices that God desires are a broken and contrite heart. These he will not despise. Whenever you come to the Lord with a repentant heart, you are coming with a reverent heart. And then last week, we talked about the dangers of taking lightly that which God takes seriously. We, if it's serious to God, it's serious to us. If it matters to him, it matters to us. And that is where we have been. So if you missed any of those messages, you can find them online or on our YouTube page. So a common theme throughout the Bible is this, be strong and courageous. And that is because there is nothing easy about living for the Lord in this lifetime. Life is tough all by itself. But then when you serve the Lord and you seek to please him, it becomes all that much more difficult because when you stand for the Lord, the world will often stand against you. And that can come from people at your work, people in your neighborhood, or people in your own family. Thus the need for the Bible to constantly remind us, be strong, be courageous. Perhaps one of the most famous examples of somebody being told to be strong and courageous is none other than Joshua. Joshua, of course, took over from Moses when Moses died as they led the people out of Egypt. Joshua 1, 6 and 7, just as an example, says this, be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous, being very, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And then just two verses later, he reiterates that. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Of course, this is perhaps one of the more famous ones, but not the only time that we see this exhortation to be strong and courageous. It's everywhere throughout the Bible. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And the reason I highlight that is because the world is telling us we don't know what a man or a woman is anymore. Well, the Bible does. Men act a certain way. We have testosterone. We're to be strong and courageous. Amen? Amen. 
act like men. Men act a certain way. We're strong and courageous. Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then one last one, 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And here is why that is so important. Because those that we read about in the pages of the Bible that were the most courageous or did what was truly heroic or stood tall in the face of incredible evil all had at least one thing in common that I can see. And that was their strong underlying reverence for the Lord. It didn't matter who the person was or the circumstances they were facing. If they were reverent, they were immovable. As a result, the people that we're going to look at today left an undeniable mark in their respective generations in which they lived. I think a very powerful example of this can be seen in what happened when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Of course, Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world at the time. The first, one of the first great empires was the Egyptian empire. But as the Israelites were in the land, they began to, the Bible says, multiply and multiply and multiply. They were a fertile people, okay? They were like gerbils. They just kept multiplying. (laughs) And this is where we pick up the story because one of the most evil decrees in the history of the world came at this time in world history. Exodus chapter one, church, hear the word of God this morning. But the more they were oppressed, that is the Israelites, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sapphira and the other Paua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Imagine being these midwives facing the most powerful man at that time in world history, telling them to slaughter innocent young babies. Needless to say, these women were in a very difficult set of circumstances for To disobey Pharaoh would have meant immediate death, just as obedience to Pharaoh would have meant great reward. What did these women end up doing? Just this. But the midwives, and everybody say it with me, feared God. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can come to them. (laughs) And that very well may be true. Now, when we read a passage like this, it is easy to lose sight of just how incredibly courageous these two women are. They have such a deep-rooted reverence for the Lord, they stand up to the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time. And they were willing to sacrifice their own lives to save the lives of these children. Who does that? You want to know who does that? Two women like this. Two women that fear God can change the world. Their deep-rooted reverence was not only the source of their courage, but the basis of their reward. God was so pleased with them, he rewarded them greatly. So God dealt with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. These two women were the reason, one of the key reasons, the Israelites continued to flourish And because the midwives, and there it is again, feared God, 
He gave them families. You see, it doesn't matter who you are or what circumstances you are facing. When you revere the Lord, you can change the world. When you revere the Lord, you can change your family. You can change your neighborhood. You can change your place of work. You can change your community. You can change your country. You can change the world. You can be two obscure midwives living 3,500 years ago from this very day and change the world. Folks, there will never, ever be a shortage of opportunities to do what is right in a fallen and wicked, wicked world. We live in a fallen and wicked world. Thus, those who revere the name of the Lord and step out courageously for him can do great things. And by the way, the courageous thing that is before us won't always be the most dramatic thing. Sometimes when we stand strong for the Lord because we revere him and we serve him only, it's going to be done in places, maybe behind closed doors or places where nobody sees. It's not always going to be a dramatic thing, but it'll be a thing that God notices and respects in your life. Speaking of obscure people, we go from two obscure women to three obscure men. The only reason many of us are familiar with the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is because of their incredible reverence, which resulted in their courageous stand against another powerful world ruler. Now, if you don't know who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, here's what you need to know. God led the Israelites up out of Egypt. Josh, Moses led them out. Joshua led them into the promised land. And there they stayed for a while, but they were disobedient. And so God raised up the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, so world empires, you can follow the world empires right through the Bible, the Egyptian empire, followed by the Assyrian empire. The Assyrian empire came and conquered part the northern part of Israel and took them off into exile. Babylon conquered the Assyrians. And they came down and got the remainder of the Jews, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom and took them off. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were a part of the group that was taken off into exile into Babylon. They were God-fearing men who were seeking to remain faithful as exiles in a very pagan nation. Things become especially difficult when a proclamation was made to worship a golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. Again, church, hear the word of God. Two obscure women to three obscure men. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, which is like a, it's like a, I had to look it up. It's, um, it's like a guitar, a harp, a bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, let me just stop for one minute. I think of all the ways to be threatened with death. One of the worst would be being burned alive. Is anybody with me on that? I mean, that just sounds horrible. If you're going to threaten me, you threaten me with that one. You can kill me a million other ways, but don't do this. Uh, it is perhaps one of the most terrifying ways I would think of dying. That threat alone would be enough to get many to compromise, but not these men, not even close. These men will only bow the knee to one, and that is the Lord God Almighty. Here's what the Bible says. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image 
that you have set up. Let me ask you a question. Who does something like this? Who stands up to the strongest, most powerful world, world leader at the time and says something like this to his face? I'll tell you who. Three obscure men who revere and fear the Lord. That's who. That is who. These men would rather die than even show the slightest bit of reverence to this golden image. They won't tip the hat. They won't say anything. It's no. It's an absolute hard no. And with the two midwives we read, have just read about, it's easy to lose sight of just how courageous these men are. Standing up to the most powerful man in the history, uh, in the, in, on the face of the planet at that time, which only highlights the, the point of this message, you guys. Those that were the most courageous who did what was truly heroic, stood tall in the face of incredible evil, all had one thing in common, at least one thing in common. They revered the name of the Lord. They did not fear men, they feared God. And they walked reverently and humbly before him. God, like he did with the midwives, honors the reverent heart of these obscure men, these three obscure men, with perhaps the most spectacular display of divine deliverance in all the Bible. Listen to what I'm about to say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who will not bow the knee to this golden image, are rewarded by standing in the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ in all his glory. How is that for a reward? Church, hear the word of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And I want you to notice the change that comes to Nebuchadnezzar in this passage. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And you would think about this. Let me just stop right here. Why would he bind them in this way? So that when they fell in the fire, they couldn't protect their faces or do anything. They were at the mercy of the fire. It would have been brutal. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now listen to this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. Let me stop for a second and say this. Folks, when you, how do you get the most powerful man in the world? How do you get his jaw to drop to the floor? Here's how you do it. You revere the Lord no matter the cost to you. Amen? You stand for the Lord. You revere him. You fear him no matter the cost to you. And when you do that, even the most powerful man in the world, his jaw will hit the ground. The king, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Incredible. These men will not bow the knee to the golden image and are rewarded by standing in the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ in all his glory incredible. Now, I am not suggesting that God will always deliver or immediately reward those that fear his name and walk reverently before him. I actually want to highlight something I said in one of the sermons earlier in this series. Remember in the book of Malachi, it says that the names of those who feared the Lord were written on a scroll of remembrance. Let me read it to you again. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And the book of remembrance, a scroll of remembrance, was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. 
Incredible. Now, are names still being added to that scroll to this day? I don't know. But I do know this. God has regard for those who fear him. He hears them. He sees them. He listens to them. He notices them. Those that revere him and walk humbly before him, he's got his eye on that person. The point is simply this. Whether or not God delivers us in times of difficulty, the fact is when we fear him and walk reverently before him and step out courageously, we walk reverently before him and step out courageously for him, he is definitely watching. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we read about them in the book of Daniel. And we cannot talk about the book of Daniel without talking about the name of the man, the the man whose name is on that book, and that is Daniel himself. Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, was a man with a deep reverence for the Lord, which led him to do something that was courageous beyond belief. Daniel found himself in a slightly different yet very similar situation as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So track with me real quick. The Egyptian empire is the world empire, but it soon wanes and here comes the Assyrians. The Assyrian empire is conquered by the Babylonians. They come down and take the Jews, the remaining Jews, off into exile. The Babylonians are eventually conquered by who? The Medo-Persian Empire, the Persian Empire, that is modern-day Iran. The Persian Empire become the big boys on the block. And it is under the Persian Empire that the Jews are eventually allowed to come back. Who conquered the Persians? The Greeks. That is Alexander the Great. So you can follow the world empires right down through the Bible. The Bibles, you can. Who conquered the Greeks? It was the Romans. After the Romans, you have the Ottoman Turks and so on and so forth, all the way to the British Empire, all the way up to where we are today. But eventually, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persians conquer the Babylonians, and Daniel is now in a different empire with a different king, King Darius. He was under Nebuchadnezzar. Now he's in a different kingdom, part of a different kingdom, under a different king, King Darius. Now, King Darius liked Daniel. Daniel distinguished himself. He was an incredible man. And Daniel so distinguished himself that the other um, high-ranking officials in the Persian empire despised him because he wasn't one of them. And yet the king adored him. So they looked for a plan to find fault with him. But he was so incredibly honorable, they could find no fault with him. So they came up with an alternative plan, this plan. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, this is King Darius, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. And here's what's important to note. When the king signed this type of injunction, even he couldn't overturn it. So they didn't, he didn't know that they were using this to trap Daniel, whom he truly had favor for. But once he signed it, Daniel's fate was doomed. But you know what type of Daniel, uh, man Daniel was? This is verses 7 through 9. You know what verse 10 says? This is what verse 10 says. It tells us a lot about who Daniel was. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he panicked and ran to the king. He ran to his friends. He was out of control. No, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done what? Previously. This was a man that regularly bowed the knee to the Lord, and he did it with open windows. He was not ashamed of it. Anybody could see him. It was on public display. He served one God, and he worshiped him regularly. 
And folks, that's significant. It is the man or the woman who daily bows a knee before the Lord, who is the one that is going to have the courage to stand strong in times of trouble, who is going to do that which changes the world, changes the generation that they're living in. Now, if you know anything about Daniel, this shouldn't surprise you. Daniel has a long history of revering the Lord. When Daniel was first taken off into Babylon, he was to be put on a new diet, but he refused. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel was a reverent man. It was on display at all times and in all ways. There was no way that he was going to bow the knee or defile himself in any way, shape, and form while he was in exile in a foreign pagan country. If it cost him his life, it cost him his life. He revered the Lord no matter the cost to him. Now, back to our story with Darius. Daniel's reverence before the Lord sets up one of the most memorable events in all the Bible. Daniel in the lion's den, right? We all know about it. We all heard about it. We all studied it as kids. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. Darius doesn't want this to happen, but he can't stop it. The next morning, Darius runs to see what happened to Daniel. And what happened? Surprise, surprise, God shows up. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Again, will God always deliver us when we rock reverently before him and step out courageously for him? Not necessarily, but of this you can be sure. God has regard for those who fear him and walk reverently before him. He does. As a matter of fact, I would argue that as Christians living in this generation, the new, much of the New Testament is, sim- the message is simply this. First Peter, much of the New Testament is this, prepare to suffer. Prepare to suffer. Walk reverently before the Lord and prepare to suffer. It doesn't mean that God um, doesn't see. God will always see you when you fear him and walk courageously for him. But prepare to suffer. Times will get tough. Times will get perilous. And it won't always be easy as Christians. But know this, it's worth it. It is worth it to serve our God, no matter the cost to us, to proclaim to the world, we will not bow the knee to the gods of this world or the rulers of this world. We serve one God. We serve one King. Amen? Amen. That's why, precisely why I said, those that have proved to be the most courageous, the most heroic, the most incredible in the face of evil, all had that one thing in common. They revered the Lord. Now, where does that leave us today? Well, guess what? Babylon isn't gone. How do I know that? Because we find Babylon in the book of Revelation. Church, hear the word of God. A Babylon is alive and well. After this, I saw this is the destruction of Babylon. So this is talking about the destruction of Babylon, which means Babylon's still around. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now, 
There is much debate as to the identity of Babylon. You're, depending on what theologian you're listening to, what commentator you're reading, people are going to say it's the United States, it's Russia, it's whatever. I'm going to give you my two cents, and you can take it for whatever it's worth. I personally think that Babylon is a reference to the evil worldly system that has always been opposed to Christ down through the centuries. There was physical Babylon, but there is another type of Babylon, and that is the evil world system that is opposed to Christ. The spiritual, political, and economic realms that are opposed to Christ. Babylon has been alive in every generation, and its destruction is coming. In other words, if it is in the world and opposed to Christ, it is part of Babylon. So when you turn on the TV later today and you turn on the news and you see all the crazy stuff that's happening in the world, you want to know what that is? That is Babylon being Babylon. (laughs) Amen? That's, you can just tell yourself, that's Babylon being Babylon. Babylon is raging. I will often turn on the news and I'll be like, Babylon is raging. Babylon is raging. But what I want you to notice even more importantly is just how wicked Babylon is. Listen to this. She has, look at the red part, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. Incredible, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. And I should have kept going with the red. For the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Babylon is exceedingly wicked, Now, why is that important? Because this is Revelation 8, 1 through 3. You know what the next two verses say? 4 and 5? It says this. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Folks, if you get nothing from my message today, get this. Daniel, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are not the only ones who are called upon to stand strong in the face of the wickedness coming out of Babylon. You and I are too. You and I are too. Babylon is alive and well, I would argue, and it is raging. And in case you haven't noticed, it is opposed to everything that we stand for. And just like the pressure that the original Babylon put on Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, modern-day Babylon is going to pressure us to bow our knees to the golden idols of this generation and to swear allegiance to the kings and rulers who are ruling at this hour in world history. The question is, will we do it? Or will we have the courage of those that have come before us that we will revere the Lord and fear the Lord and fear no man, fear no threat, but proclaim the one true God Proclaim his gospel of his son crucified and risen to this generation. Will we do it? I can tell you this much. The Christians who have the courage to stand strong in the face of the pressures of Babylon will no doubt, not only the Christians, the churches, the homes, whatever, those people and those institutions and those homes that stand strong will be those people who ultimately fear the Lord and revere his name. Folks, you set apart, heart, you set apart Christ in your heart and you keep him set apart. Amen? We serve one. We fear one. Reverent people do courageous things. They always have and they always will. And can I prove it to you? Think about this passage just briefly. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Folks, you think we're living in a wicked time? 
Babylon has always been raging. Babylon was so bad in the time of Noah that God's going to wipe it out with a flood. That's how bad it was then. And yet there's a man who so reveres God and fears God and reveres and fears what God has warned about that Noah courageously undertook a massive building project that took anywhere from 50 to 75 years to complete. Do you understand? I mean, that's incredible. Imagine undertaking building an ark. It's going to take you 50 to 75 years to build. You're going to be probably mocked and ridiculed, but because you fear the Lord, you do it. You see, that's what reverent people do. They're the type of people that change families, change communities, change states, change countries, change the world. See, the pressing question for each of us here today is simply this. Who or what do you truly revere? Who have you set apart or what have you set apart in your heart? 1 Peter 3.15, but set apart Christ in your heart and always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. But that verse starts by saying, set apart Christ in your heart. You see, the answer to this question, by the way, will not be found in the words that come out of your mouth, but the decisions that you make in this generation. You can say that you fear the Lord, but you are going to be presented with opportunities, no doubt. Probably even some of us here today are going to experience it because we live in a wicked world. You are going to be faced with opportunities to put your words into actions. Many Christians, as well as churches that we once considered strong, have been exposed as incredibly weak. Why is that? It's very simple. They have come to fear men more than they fear the Lord. They have come to revere the praise of men more than the praise of God. Let's commit to be Christians that don't do that and a church that doesn't do that. Amen? Amen. Listen, if the Lord doesn't come back in this generation, I hope he does. But if he doesn't, who knows? Maybe the believers a hundred years from now will marvel at the courage we showed here and now.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. following program is called Equipping the Saints.
Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, we are a fallen people. We are a forgetful people. I forgot just right now to bring up a sheet of paper that I had some extra notes on. We're forgetful people. And sometimes those things we forget have little consequence, and sometimes they have great consequences. I used to be a corporate pilot. I still do a little flying, and there are things that if you forget while you're flying that can be of little consequence, and there are things that if you forget them can be of great consequence. There are times where we forget things, and within that there isn't much of an issue. But the reality is, in our Christian walk, there are things that God wants us to remember And if we don't remember them, there are consequences to not remembering them. And today we're going to get a reminder from a good shepherd, the Apostle Peter, concerning some things that we need to remember. And God wants us to, and he shares it through Peter. Would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3? And we are moving through our study of 2 Peter. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 today. And we're going to see how we can escape the danger that false teachers pose as Peter exhorts us to remember the Word of God. Now the context of the book of 1 Peter, if you haven't been here, Peter is writing to believers, and he shares in chapter 1 that they have a like faith of the apostles. You see, anyone who is trusted in Jesus Christ has the same faith. We've trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. And this book is simply about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is simply about that. And within that, Peter shares the tremendous truths throughout this book concerning growing in the grace of our Lord. He shares in chapter 1 that we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We've been given everything we need. We've been given his precious and magnificent promises. We have the Spirit-empowered Word of God that enables us to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then we saw in chapter 1 that he calls true believers to by faith act upon the truth in which they have received. And if we're acting upon it, we should be changing. There should be things going on in the lives of true believers. And he gives a list of things that if they are yours and you possess them, you are neither unfruitful or useless in your relationship with Jesus Christ. He shares that we should be growing and manifesting moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And if these things are ours and are increasing, that renders us neither useless or unfruitful in our relationship with Jesus. And then Peter reminds them, as we'll see today in chapter 1, that he is always ready to remind them, to stir them up by way of reminder of the realities of the scriptures, the truth of God that we grow in our relationship with Jesus with. And then after that, he shared the truth that God's word is more sure. It's more sure than any experience, even an experience the apostle Peter had on the Mount of Transfiguration. The written word is more sure, so which we do well to pay heed to it. We do well. We do beautifully, the word really speaks of, to pay attention to God's word. And then we saw in the end of chapter 1 that we should know something first of all, first and foremost, that no prophecy of the written word, scripture, becomes one's own personal interpretation. Why? Because no prophecy ever came from an act of human will. But men, moved by the Spirit of God, spoke from God. 
And so within this, we have the exhortation to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord through the word of God, which builds us up as we walk by faith with Jesus. And then we move to chapters 2 and 3, and chapters 2 and 3 really have to do with the threats to our relationship with Jesus Christ, the threats to our relationship with him. He shares in the beginning that there will be false teachers who will arise among you. There's going to be bad guys who are going to mess with you and the word of God in the church. False teachers will arise among you. And he shares that many will follow them. Many will follow. A lot of believers are going to get caught up following bad guys. But God doesn't miss a beat. These bad guys, their judgment is from long ago. It is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And then in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, he gave an explanation. He shared some examples of how God had already previously brought forth judgment. First of all, on those angels who had crossed a line during the time of Noah. Secondly, upon the entire world at the time of Noah. He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And third, he brought a destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah as an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. And so within that, he then gives a summary. And look at chapter 2, verse 9. He says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And then he says, verse 10, Especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. You know what? He's going to keep non-believers under judgment to the day of wrath, to the day of their judgment. And yet there are some within that that are even more wicked, especially those who do these things, indulge in the flesh and in its corrupt desires and despise authority. And then from verses 10 to the end of the chapter, the apostle Peter, inspired by the Spirit, gives a description, first of all, internally what these bad guys are like, what you can't see, but what God wants us to know. And then secondly, how we can spot them as believers. We can actually spot them so that we can be protected from them. And so first of all, we saw that their motives underneath, what was going on, God revealed this. We can't see this in people, but God wanted to show us this. He says in the middle of verse 10, daring self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. These are greedy fakers, as we'll see, on their way to hell. They are apostates who knew the right way in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but have internally turned from him. They never came to faith, but they knew the truth. Turned from him back to their old sinful ways. And now they are faking a relationship with Jesus to deceive believers into following them and their own lusts And they do that by molding and twisting the word of God, luring unstable souls because they love the wages of unrighteousness and they revel in their deceptions. We saw that they enjoy and delight in deceiving believers. End of verse 13. They enjoy and delight in introducing destructive heresies. They introduce those secretly. Verse 1. They lure unstable souls. Verse 15. They entice by arrogant, empty, fleshly words, verse 18. They enjoy and delight exploiting in false words, verse 3. They are sneaky, they are stains and blemishes, eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, having hearts trained in greed. And God says to Peter, they are accursed children. And that's what's going on on the inside. We can't see that. 
But then as we saw last week, the Apostle Peter shares what we can see to protect us. And indeed, anyone who loves their children would share those things that are dangerous to protect their children. God loves us. We are his children. And there are dangers to our walk with Jesus. And he loves us so much that he wants to point this out for us so that we would not get sidetracked in growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And believe me, there are a lot of believers who are sidetracked in their relationship with Jesus. But so wonderfully, God warns us of these terrible things that will come and arise in the church. And last week, we saw that you could spot them, that God identifies them. He used two illustrations. He said they are springs with no water. They're like this spring, the source of water. It appears as though you're going to be refreshed. You're going to get a sermon. You're going to get the word of God. It's going to build you up. But underneath it, there's no water. They are mists driven by a storm. You believe that you're going to be fed the word of God, and you leave with a little mist on your arms. They're mists driven by a storm. And then we saw within that how they do that. Verse 18 of chapter 2. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. They subtly lure, as and I said they would be among you, they lure believers by your own desires. That's how they do it. They lure by your own desires. You may hear a lot about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because as we saw, they knew the truth about this Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You'll see that in verses 19 through 21. They knew it, but they turned away on the inside. They know about salvation. They will promise freedom as we see in that portion. We saw it last week. But internally, they are slaves to corruption. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. You'll hear a lot about Jesus, a lot about Christianity, a lot about morality, but you're never ultimately fed the word of God, which convicts you of sin. We need to be convicted. I'll tell you that I do. We need to be then corrected and then trained in righteousness, taught the word of God. They are springs without water, and they lure you in your flesh to think you're okay with God when you really aren't. You think your walk is right with Jesus, but it really isn't at that time. And the bait these false teachers lay in their traps is that which pulls upon your own desires. Maybe the desire to get out of a difficult situation. Maybe the desire to ease the pressure. The desire to fulfill your needs. It's not desires to do outwardly wicked things because they actually promise freedom. But they don't deliver that. And so they lay the trap. They promise freedom in Christ as we see in that passage. And in context, they are the ones who are actually in bondage on their way to hell. And the freedom they promise you puts you in temporal bondage if you're a true believer. Your walk with Jesus is temporarily derailed. Yes, you're still a believer, but you're not growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these false teachers, having pretended to follow Jesus, knew the way of righteousness. They outwardly appear to be following him, and they appear to have escaped the corruption of the world, but yet they are apostates who have internally been overcome by sin, their greed, their wickedness, and have turned back to us. Even the illustration that Peter gives in the end of chapter 2, they've returned to their own vomit. They actually pretended to follow the Lord. They still pretend so. They knew the truth. They identified with it. They sort of cleaned up their act a little bit. And then they turned internally back to their sinfulness like a dog returning to his own vomit or a sow returning to the mire, right? And so we saw in chapter 2 the truth concerning the motives of these people and then their actions, their modus operandi. So with that in mind, we begin chapter 3 where Peter continues to warn us 
about the dangers that will come to our relationship with Jesus Christ, to every believer's relationship with Christ. Second Peter chapter 3, the whole chapter is one big block, and I, I wish we could teach the whole thing, but we just can't. Uh, it's all together, so remember that. But we're only going to look at the first four verses, and we're just going to barely touch verse 4 today, and then we'll go after that next week, Lord willing, to the rest of it. But let me read, and we'll read farther than our passage today just to get a little context for us. He says here, Second Peter 3, verse 1, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And that's where we're going to finish today. But let's keep reading. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Now, like as I shared in chapter 2, chapter 3 is one big unit. And we are artificially stopping today at verse 4, but it goes on. You can actually read beyond this to the end of the chapter. It is all together. So with this in mind, how are we to avoid the danger that these false teachers, these terrible apostates who pretend to be those following Jesus, who will derail your walk with Jesus, who are clouds or springs without water, misdriven by a storm, how do we avoid them? Well, I think first of all, Peter's going to say we need to remember what God has spoken to us through his word. And I believe it's concerning these things. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. This is now, beloved... The second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter reminds them this is the second letter that he is writing to them. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing. We have First Peter and we have Second Peter. This is the second letter I am writing you, he says. I am writing to you. We know First Peter was the first letter, and this is the second one. And notice he calls them beloved. 
He says, this is now beloved, the second letter I am writing. At this point, Peter has not spoken of these believers as beloved. Now at this point, he is speaking of them as beloved, i.e. those who are deeply loved. And we're going to find in chapter 3, apart from calling the Apostle Paul our beloved brother, that he's going to give four specific encouragements or exhortations to the believers. And each one he's going to preface with this term, beloved. We see here in our portion, beloved, we see it in verse 1, verse 8, verse 14, and verse 17. He is talking to those who are true believers, who are loved by God and loved by Him. He cares for them. He cares for them, and he is saying, Beloved, this is something you need to hear. This is something you need to respond to. You think about someone who is very dear to you, and when they come to you with that heart, Beloved, they want to share something that is important. They love you. They care for you. And he's saying, Beloved. Indeed, we saw the same thing in 1 Peter. When he was making an important charge to believers, he would say, Beloved, 1 Peter 2.11. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing. It's going to be seriously intense, Beloved, but God loves you. He is working through these things to his glory as you trust in Christ. Peter deeply loves the Lord and the body of Christ, and he is admonishing the Beloved by him and by Christ to do something that will protect them spiritually, that will protect them in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, verse 1, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. The term stirring up speaks of being woken up, aroused from sleep. It came to speak of things that were stirred up. You can think of the ocean or the Sea of Galilee during the storm, stirred up. I'm stirring up your sincere mind. I want to wake you up. I want to wake you up. Hold your fingers in chapter 3 and turn back to chapter 1. Remember what he said earlier in verse 13? Look at what he said in verse 13 in chapter 1. He said, and I consider it right. As long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, he's saying, hey, as long as I'm alive, I'm in this tent, this body of flesh, to stir you up by way of reminder. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. Well, there's no retirement here for shepherds. He's going to preach and remind them till he goes to be with the Lord. He's a faithful servant of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, we can become spiritually lethargic, lazy, or sleepy. And he says back in chapter 3, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind. Now this term translated sincere is an interesting word in Greek. It literally means that which is tested by the sun. And what they would do at the local you know, sales areas where the merchants, they would sell pottery. And if they were unscrupulous merchants, they had a crack in the pottery, they'd fill it with wax. And so what people would do, would they would take the pot and they would hold it up to the sun. And you could see if there was a crack there. You could see if it was genuine or not. And he says here, I am stirring up your sincere, your genuine, or your pure minds, that's your thinking, by way of reminder. Believers, we can have minds and thinking that is genuine and pure in Christ. 
We can have renewed thinking. We can think the way that God wants us to think. We can think his truth and his ways apart from the way we used to think before we were in Jesus. We can have renewed minds. He says, I'm stirring up your sincere minds. Stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm waking up your sincere and genuine mind. I'm writing this second letter to you. I'm waking you up. I want you to be thinking. I'm waking up your sincere minds by way of reminder. And notice we saw a minute ago back in chapter 1, verse 15, and I will also be diligent that any time after my departure you may be able to call these things to mind. He's going to be diligent to remind them of the truth so that you can bring to mind those truths at any time. You see, Peter genuinely loves these believers And God genuinely loves us. And he wants us to be reminded, to not forget those things that we need to be reminded of. He's reminding them of the truth of God. And the first step to not being entangled by those who would so subtly lure us by our own desires, saying all the stuff they say about Jesus, but really not bringing forth what we need, the first step is being reminded of the truth of God. You see... False teachers are going to twist, lessen, pervert, mold, ignore. They're going to mock the word of God. They're going to appeal to your desires. They're going to appear as though they're a spring bringing forth everything you need in Christ, but it's empty, there's nothing there. And we need to be reminded of the word. We need to be reminded of what God has said in the past and what he has said now through his word. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Look at verse 2 now. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. He's saying, I'm stirring up your sincere mind that you should remember two things. The words previously spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, and the commandment spoken through the apostles, that of the Lord and Savior. That you should remember the words, first of all, spoken by the apostles. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 19. Remember what Peter said earlier? And by the way, to remember something implies that you have heard it already, right? To remember something implies that you understand and know of it. He says in 2 Peter 1.19, So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well or, or you do beautifully to pay attention.
now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.